Man, y'all really missed your boy, didn't you? I am so ecstatic, man, about some of the feedback that I have gotten from some of the uh, some of you folks who have been listening to the Page Turners. I <laughs> I want to say thank you sincerely. Uh, and I know a few of you who've asked me to drop uh, my cash app and whether or not I have Patreon and all those things. I don't have Patreon because I'm not in this for the money. This is not why I do this work. This is not why I study. This is not why I read. Uh, I don't do it for that. I do it because I want to create a better world for my girls. And this is one of the ways that I can do that. But I won't deny people either the the want to to give. Uh, so my cash app is dollar sign Elgin Bailey. That's dollar sign Elgin Bailey. Now I'll mention it in the beginning of the broadcast, and I'll mention it at the end of the broadcast. Uh, but thank you guys ahead of time for your hearts in wanting to contribute to what is being built here at the Page Turners because I have a grand vision I have a huge desire for this to grow into having conversations with authors and narrators and doing book clubs whether it be virtual in you know in face-to-face uh i want to do those little book cubby shack type of things that you see on the corners in some neighborhoods where people can put books in and then people can come by and pick up books that are in those cubbies down and discussing it there's a plan there's a vision in place and this is one of the building blocks so without further ado Let's do what we do. It's your boy Elgin Bailey back with another episode of The Page Turners. Each season, a text is selected to read. Each episode, we will discuss, unpack, critique, call out, and apply to our lives with the intent of changing the current state of predominantly black schools, neighborhoods, black lives, and black homes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Another great episode is in front of us, man. We are about to dive into season three, episode three of this season's reading, Evicted, by award-winning author Matthew Desmond. Here's a list of some of the awards that Mr. Desmond has won. Winner of the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award. Winner of the 2017 Pan John Kenneth Gilbreth Award. Winner of the 2017 Andrew Carnegie Medal. Winner of the 2017 Penn and New England Award. Man, listen, the the brothers just won. Well, not the brother. The man has won a number of awards for this text. Uh, And it has been incredibly powerful. So, without further ado, let's dive in to... Do-do-do-do-do. Evicted 
by Matthew Desmond. This begins a new chapter, new story. Chapter 8, Christmas in Room 400. Sharina decided to evict Arlene. The funeral and subsequent welfare sanction had put Arlene far too behind. $870. Sharina felt it was time to let go and move on to the next tenant. Earlier in the month, she had filed the paperwork and received the court date of December 23rd, which would be the last eviction court before Christmas that year. Sharina knew that the courthouse would be packed. Many parents chose to take their chances with their landlords rather than face their children empty-handed on Christmas morning. A new tenant had already asked Sharina if a portion of her rent money could be returned so she can buy gifts. <sighs> Damn it. Sharina told her, you gotta have a house to put the Christmas tree and presents in. You've been knowing Christmas was coming 11 months ago. Damn it. I tried to limit my commentary to a little later on into chapters because I don't want to be so caught up in just giving commentary that we don't actually read the text. But within this one paragraph, we're seeing Sharina, a landlord who's looking to evict Arlene. Arlene has experienced a uh, death in the family. I think we might get to that later on in the chapter. But there's a funeral and a subsequent welfare sanction that put Arlene's $870 behind. Sharina, the landlord, feels it's time to move on. It's time to let Arlene go. So... <laughs> It's not about the death in Arlene's family. It's not about the welfare sanction that Arlene is facing. Let's keep it 100. It's about that $870. Now, in no way, shape, or form do I want to act as if $870 is just chump change. That $870 is not something to be concerned about. That $870 just, you know, is walking around the street money, money that you just casually have in your pocket. You know, $870 is a decent amount of money, particularly for a low-income, low-socioeconomic environment. But here's where the beast, the, the monster of capitalism comes in is that capitalism is such a devouring, uncaring, unfeeling, blind beast that Sharina is only focused on getting her $870, not the welfare of Arlene, to the point where, now, now again, there's the other side of this capitalism component too. We're not just talking about landlords who don't give a shit about their tenants, but look what capitalism does for us during the holidays. Now I'm not going to rail against anyone who practices and celebrates the Christmas holiday. Here's the thing. We put such a emphasis on making sure that we provide gifts Oftentimes now, high quality, 
high pricing gifts that we've lost focus on the importance of the holiday, which should be giving, loving each other. But now we place a price tag on that. So we're giving our kids PS5s and New Jordans. And I'm not here to count anyone's pocket, count anyone's change. That's not what I'm doing. But I have to say that capitalism has conditioned us in many ways to place in a, a, a value that, that on uh, the, the items ultimately making us feel good about ourselves based off of what we can purchase up until what we actually sacrifice to purchase. So we'll put our rent, our mortgage, our car payment, cell phone bill, whatever the case may be, and put that on the back burner so we can, quote unquote, buy gifts for our family. Capitalism, man, it's a monster. It creates situations and environments such as this to the point where you have landlords like Sharina saying things like, you got to have a house to put the Christmas tree and presents in. You've been knowing Christmas was coming 11 months ago. As if people just have all this abundance of money sitting around and they blow it for 11 months and then decide when it's time to pay the rent. Oh, I'm not going to pay. That's not the case, man. Lord have mercy. And we read. The night before Sharina and Arlene's date in the eviction court, snow began to fall. When Milwaukeeans woke up the following morning, they found their city buried in it. People in parkas and knit hats shuffled the sidewalks. Mothers with bundled up children huddled under bus stop awnings, shifting their weight from one leg to another. The city's smokestacks billowed cotton-thick clouds of steam into pale sky. Holiday decorations dotted the north side. A black nativity, a snowman smiling from an abandoned lot. Sharina pulled up to the Milwaukee courthouse. The courthouse had been built in 1931, but made to look like it had always been there. Corinthian columns, taller and thicker than oak trunks, encircled the building, lifting its roof high above downtown. The building was enormous, with an imposing limestone facade on which the architects had etched in block letters, Vox Populi Vox D. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Sharina wondered if Arlene would show. Most of the time, tenants didn't, and Sharina preferred it that way. She had learned that it didn't matter how much kindness you had shown a tenant up to that point. All that stuff goes out the window in court. Sharina had brought Arlene milk and groceries. She even had a worker deliver a stove that was sitting unused in one of her vacant units. But she knew that once in front of the commissioner, Arlene was more than likely to bring up the time the water heater went out or mention the hole in the window Quentin still hadn't fixed. Now, just think about that just for a moment. I think that's when you hear people mention things like I brought them milk and groceries. Milk and groceries are fine and they're wonderful and they're great and people are gracious to receive them. But like so many other things, they don't get to the root of the issue. 
The root of the issue is not just that Arlene is hungry at that moment and didn't have food. It was the fact that she didn't have the resources needed to purchase her own food. So my warning to folks who want to get involved in this work, who are interested in doing this kind of work, that you begin to maintain and stay at a root-focused position. And if you stay at a root-focused position, you still will attack and address the the, the, the the symptoms or the leaves and the branches of it all, you just won't get tangled up in the branches and remain there. And we read, she didn't have to, but she had a soft spot for Arlene. Plus, Sharina worried about the, about the commissioners. She thought they were sympathetic to tenants and tried to block landlords with technicalities. Sharina had a couple of cases thrown out on account of paperwork errors. When that happened, she had to start the eviction process all over again, which usually meant losing another month's rent on that unit. When things went her way, however, she could have the eviction squad physically remove tenants within 10 days. Damn it. Once she was through security, Sharina made her right to room 400 Milwaukee County Small Courts claim the busiest courthouse in the state. I can't imagine why. Her footsteps clacked on the marble floors and echoed off the vaulted ceilings. She passed lawyers in trench coats staring at the floor and talking on their cell phones, and young parents with children gaping like tourists. The courthouse was full. Women and men were squeezed into long wooden benches, very uncomfortable benches, just by the way, and stood lining the walls, their bodies warming the chamber. Sharina looked for a seat, waving at a landlord she recognized. She's showing up to court, and it's like a <laughs> like a reunion. Jesus. At the back of the courtroom, landlords were talking tenants into stipulation agreements, offering to dismiss evictions if tenants caught up on their rent. Don't you think they would have caught up on their damn rent if they could have already caught up? Anyway, uh, one, a white man in a leather jacket who had been in the local paper a few months back for racking up hundreds of property violations was joking with his young female assistant when a tenant approached. The tenant was a black woman. Now, this is going to go horribly wrong already, ladies and gentlemen. I just want to let you know, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm almost guaranteed that this is about to be a shitstorm. The tenant was a black woman, likely in her 50s. Her shoulders were uplifted under her worn overcoat. She reached into her purse and handed the landlord $700 in cash. I'm hoping, she began, the landlord cut her off. Don't hope. Write the check. I can get you another 600 in two weeks. The landlord asked her to sign a stipulation, which included a $55 late fee. She reached for his pen. Damn it. Toward the front of the room, in a reserved space with tables and plenty of empty chairs, sat lawyers in pinstripe suits and power ties. They had been hired by landlords. Some sat with manila folders stacked in front of them, reading the paper or filling in crosswords. Others joked with the bailiff, who periodically broke conversation to tell tenants to remove his hat or lower her voice. Everyone in the reserve space, the lawyers and bailiff, were white. Mm. 
I hope you caught that. You have poor black, white, and brown people going into a environment of deep intimidation. If anybody's ever been to the courthouse, man, you you know how damn intimidating a courthouse can be no matter what side you may be on, unless you are in the position of power. And then to go in there and to have everyone who is in control, essentially, of your ultimate destination be white? Shit. And we read, In front of the lawyers, a large wooden desk faced the crowd. Two women sat on either side of the desk, calling out the day's cases and taking attendance. Most of the names flung into the air went unclaimed. Roughly 70% of tenants sent them to Milwaukee's eviction court didn't come. The same was true in other major cities. In some urban courts, only one tenant in 10 showed. Some tenants couldn't miss work or couldn't find child, court or were, child care or were confused by the whole process or couldn't care less or would rather avoid the humiliation. I think that last part is more often than not than what we find. When tenants did not show up and their landlord or represent, representative did, the caller applied three quick steps stamps to the file, indicating the tenant had received a default eviction judgment and placed it on top of a growing pile. The sound of eviction court was soft hum of dozens of people sighing, coughing, murmuring, and whispering to children introspected with the cadence of a name, a pause, and three loud thumps of a stamp. Damn, that stamp was like the rhythm, setting the tone of the tension-filled environment. Can you envision that? Your nerves are already on edge. Your whole life is in the hands of other people who don't look like you, who don't come from the same place as you, but that stamp, that thump, thump, thump of the stamp. Jeez. And we read, Behind the front desk frame between two grand wooden columns hung a large painting of Moses descending Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments unbroken. He glared down at the Israelites in the desert, dancing around the golden calf. Doorways on either side of the caller's desk led to the commissioner's office where actual hearings took place. When the case was called, landlords and tenants walked through a side doorway, usually to emerge just a few minutes later. A black woman whose hearing had just concluded stepped back into the room holding the, holding her child's hand. Her head was wrapped and she had kept on a heavy blue winter coat. She didn't even take her coat off. She continued down the middle aisle of room 400, walking by an anemic white man with homemade tattoos, a white woman in a wheelchair wearing pajama pants and Crocs, a blind black man with a limp hat on his head, a Hispanic man wearing work boots and a shirt that read, Pray for Us, all waiting for their eviction courts. Tenants in the eviction court were generally poor, and almost all of them, 92%, had missed rent payments. The majority spent at least half their household rent, her household income on rent. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. One third devoted at least 80% to it. Of the tenants who did come to court and were evicted, only one in six had another place lined up. Shelters or their apartments of friends and family 
A few resigned themselves to the streets. Most simply did not know where they would go. I, I, you know, I can't ignore the, the heaviness of this topic. Uh, particularly certain parts of it. Let's let's reread this for just a moment, and I won't offer too much commentary. But as you notice, ladies and gentlemen, when I'm reading certain things, I may read the same passage or part of a passage over and over again for emphasis. It's one of those highlight moments. It's one of those moments that I really want you to chew on. Tenants in eviction court were generally poor and almost all of them, 92% had missed rent payments. The majority spent at least half their household income on rent. One third devoted at least 80% of it. So all of the income that these folks are making. So if they're making $1,000, if they're making $1,000 a month, $500 of that thousand is going to rent. Let's do it even worse, or let's do the 80%. Now, I'm not a mathematician. I don't play one on TV. I know how to carry the one and hit some buttons on the calculator. But let's think about this just for a moment. If I make $1,000 a month, and one-third, at least 80% of that $1,000 goes to my rent. Out of that $1,000, that means what, ladies and gentlemen? $800 out of that 1000 is going to their rent. That literally leaves them with $200 roughly for food, clothing and just basic necessities transportation back and forth to get back to this job just imagine that a, a, a life emergency happens a pandemic hits some sort of racial violence upsets and usurps their racial their family dynamic what savings do they have to lean on? What money do they have to, to fall back on? What, what do they do in those circumstances? They find themselves in the eviction court. And unfortunately, many find themselves on the street. I'm going to read a couple more passages. And I read... The woman in a blue winter coat found the face of another black woman sitting at the end of a pew. As she passed, she bent down and whispered, Don't worry, it only takes a minute, honey. As usual, the courtroom was full of black women. In a typical month, three in four people in Milwaukee eviction court were black. Of those three in four were women. The total number of black women in the eviction court exceeded that of all other groups combined. Highlight moment. As usual, the courtroom was full of black women 
In a typical month, three in four people in Milwaukee eviction court were black. Of those, three in four were women. The total number of black women in the eviction court exceeded that of all other groups combined. Children of all ages encircled these women. A girl with a full box of barrettes in her hair sat quietly swinging her legs under the pew. A dark-skinned boy in a collared shirt, two sizes too big, sat up straight and wore a hard face. His sister next to him tried to sleep, folding one arm over her eyes and clutching a stuffed dog in the other. No child care. Ain't had no choice but to bring her children and wanted to make sure her children looked presentable and maybe the only thing that they had to put on was a collared dress shirt. Two sizes too big. And we read, In Milwaukee's poorest black neighborhoods, eviction had become commonplace, especially for women. In those neighborhoods, one female renter in 17 was evicted through the court system each year, which was twice as often as men from those neighborhoods, and nine times as often as women from the city's poorest white areas. Women from black neighborhoods made up 9% of Milwaukee's population and 30% of its evicted tenants. Highlight moment. Women from black neighborhoods made up 9% of Milwaukee's population and 30% of its evicted tenants. If incarceration had come to define the lives of men from impoverished black neighborhoods, eviction was shaping the lives of women Poor black women were locked up. Poor black women were locked out. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that's a perfect place to end this episode of the Page Turners. Season one, episode two. Jeez. I'm going to read that last line one more time because I want us to, I want that to be stuck inside of your brains, inside your thoughts. I want that to hang there. I want that to resonate with you. I want that to encompass your thoughts. I want that, I want it to shake you to your core. I want that thought and this, 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 this piece, this little paragraph, this literally little paragraph of three sentences to shake you. I mean, I want it to literally take your breath away, but I also want it to begin to produce thoughts, produce questions, and to begin to ask why, how, who, when, and what can be done to fix it. And I read, if incarceration had come to define the lives of black men from impoverished black neighborhoods, eviction was shaping the lives of women. Poor black men were locked up. Poor black women were locked out. If incarceration 
had come to define the lives of men from impoverished black neighborhoods. Eviction was shaping the lives of women. Poor black men were locked up. Poor black women were locked out. <sighs> Thank you for tuning in to Page Turners with me, Elgin Bailey. May the pages you read assist in creating the change we need. Till next time, family. I'm out.